0: Again and again, throughout time, there have been moments when humans, we clever, rational beings who see ourselves at the top of the animal kingdom, have succumbed, en masse, to madness. Lynchings, public hangings, war crimes, and holocausts, these violent acts carried out under the spell of the mob mentality are difficult to comprehend from the outside. Often we look back at such events and think, I'm so glad I don't live then. But is it really true that we've left this craziness behind us? Can it honestly be said that we, as a species, have somehow outgrown this sort of insanity, that we are no longer susceptible to the overwhelming strength of the mob and the power of group fear? I would argue that we are still in the thick of it, perhaps at this exact moment and certainly in the very recent past. I'm talking about a time not too long ago when hundreds of Americans fell under the thrall of the seductive and wicked notion that Satan was taking over. Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Pertil. People listening to this podcast will recognize the term Satanic Panic. Some may even have a clear recollection of what exactly took place during this period of the 1980s and early 90s. But most, I would imagine, have little appreciation for the bizarre contribution that psychology played in this mayhem. Few, I think, know that some of the uniquely strange origins of this cultural confusion can be put squarely on the shoulders of the widespread misunderstanding of a truly odd phenomenon, that of false memory implantation. If you tuned in two weeks ago, you may have a good sense of what false memory implantation is, but let's start with a recap. For the last 40 years, researchers have been exploring the mechanisms of false memory creation. Contributions from many revered psychologists have shown that it is indeed possible, perhaps even easy, to encourage another person or oneself to alter a memory for an event, or even to fabricate a recollection for something that never happened. Children are most susceptible to this occurrence, but even adults are very malleable, particularly in vulnerable circumstances, such as those found in a therapist's office or police interrogation room. Essentially, a memory is but an intangible trace colored by perspectives and experiences beyond the original event and small suggestions can trick our imaginations into shifting or completely changing what we recall. Imagine for a moment how powerful this can be. You trust your own mind. You believe absolutely that the things you remember, the things you can picture and describe, are real. Those things, after all, make up your understanding of the world and of yourself. Your name, your childhood, your first kiss, the car accident that you survived. These pieces of information form a large portion of your identity. But what if you could no longer tell truth from fiction or reality from fantasy? What if you no longer knew whether or not you had witnessed terrible things or worse, done them? What if you couldn't even say with conviction that you were innocent of things like ritual child abuse or murder? This is what happened to people during the Satanic Panic. They went to therapists and church leaders for help and wound up locked away in mental facilities or jails, believing to the core of their being that they were lifelong members of Satan-worshipping families, had molested their own children in unspeakable ways, and even sacrificed babies to Lucifer. In some extraordinary cases, people who were accused of these acts came to believe them so completely that they pled guilty in a court of law and were convicted. Beginning in the early 1980s, a religious backlash against the free-spirited 60s and 70s opened the door to a new kind of wildness. Obsession with the devil and deep paranoia that Satan worshippers walked among us. Therapists were not immune to this fear and were soon using satanic cults as a means to explain other psychological conditions. The first famous instance of this is documented in Michelle Remembers, an autobiography published in 1980, written by Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist Lawrence Pazder, and what they claimed is nothing short of incredible. According to the book, Smith had come to Pazder for help with depression caused by a miscarriage. Soon, however, she said that there was something else she wanted him to know, but she couldn't remember what it was. Not long after, they had a therapy session in which she had a break. After screaming and crying for nearly half an hour, she began talking in a five-year-old's voice. Over the course of the next year, the therapy continued, with Pazder using repeated hypnosis to help Smith recover alleged repressed memories of ritualized abuse at the hands of a cult, the so-called Church of Satan. Pazder then diagnosed Smith with multiple personality disorder, now called dissociative identity disorder, explaining that the trauma she had evidently experienced as a child had caused a split in her personality. The book goes on to detail the memories they uncovered together, including one ceremony that lasted for 81 days and culminated in the appearance of the devil himself. Despite wide criticism and a great deal of evidence proving these allegations wrong, Smith and Pazder, who went on to marry, maintained its truth. The release of Michelle Remembers, among other things, incited a widespread popularity for the notion of recovered memories and the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder as an explanation for their repression. Soon enough, the satanic cult element became a more popular piece of the puzzle. For example, take a look at Geraldo Rivera's 1988 special, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. Here in Chicago, a group of well-known therapists from all over the country had the courage to share horror stories. We're talking about people in some cases who are coming to us as patients who were raised in satanic cults from the time they were born. Featured in that special were a panel of so-called experts in multiple personality disorder, most famously doctors Roberta Sachs and Bennett Braun, who stepped forward to testify to their knowledge of rampant abuse at the hands of Satan worshippers. I have letters in my file uh, from over 40 states in the United States and several provinces of Canada and uh, one from England with very similar data. If just a tiny bit of it is true, uh, it's appalling and uh, there's a need for somebody to do something. Part of the, the, the power of the cult, both with the individual and with the others around it, is its ability to induce fear. This fascination with hidden cults led to a style of intensive therapy meant to help patients uncover repressed stories of abuse so as to route out the supposed perpetrators Many of these patients were seeking therapy for things such as depression or anxiety but this new form of therapy drove them to work towards something much darker memories of false trauma and admission of satanic worship Mary's stupid. You're getting better She's so yeah. stupid. I hate her I- Mary has people that care about her to take care of her. Have- These therapy sessions often paved the road for a multiple personality diagnosis, as described in the following clip from the 1993 Frontline episode Search for Satan. And so she described multiplicity as taking a vase and dropping it on a cement floor. And that's what had happened to my personality. I, I- the patient you just heard, identified only as Mary S., was told that her repressed memories divulged an unimaginable family history that was suddenly revealing itself. Um, Who's we? Our, my um, family, my parents, my sisters, and I. As unbelievable as it may sound, these allegations were taken seriously by the therapists and family members of patients. Many people who had originally sought help for far more mundane psychological complaints. Were abruptly institutionalized after being told that they were a danger to themselves and others. As Mary S. went on to describe, they they were experts. They, they said, "We've been studying this this for fifteen years. We've done research. You know, we've we've uh, this phenomena is is happening all over the world." It was like going deeper and deeper and deeper into an abyss. If these were the, quote, experts, then what was happening in the general population? How did this terror influence people who were not trained in such things as personality disorders or implanted memories? Well, some took matters into their own hands, with disastrous consequences. There are many documented occurrences of ritual abuse allegations that were later proved to be utterly false. Kelly Michaels in New Jersey, the McMartin Preschool in California, and the Little Rascals Daycare Center in North Carolina are just a few examples of cases in which suggestive questioning and therapy led to police involvement and wild assertions of satanic cult cruelty. To truly get a sense of how false memory implantation played into all of this, however, let's look at one of the most controversial and appalling examples, the Thurston County Ritual Abuse Case, which ensnared and destroyed a man named Paul Ingram. Ingram was the chief civil deputy of the Thurston Sheriff's Department in Olympia, Washington, the county Republican chairman and an active member of the local Pentecostal church, the Church of Living Water, a fact that eventually played into his ruin. In short, he appeared to be an upstanding member of society. In late 1988, however, All that began to change when his eldest daughter, Erica went away to a church retreat. Now, to understand what happened next, it is important to know that the church to which the Ingram family belonged was already caught up in the fervor caused by the fear of satanic cults. Indeed, this particular church was said to preach that Satan could infiltrate the minds of good Christians and control their actions, forcing them to do evil, then removing all memory of their crimes. Furthermore, the Church of Living Water contended that any future recollections of these bad acts were, in fact, proof of their truth, because God would never permit such a harmful thing as a false memory. On November 28, 1988, Paul Ingram was called into the Sheriff's office by the detectives in charge of sex abuse cases in Thurston County. He waived his right to an attorney, and the questioning began. He was told that his daughter, Erica, had had an experience at the church retreat that required investigation. Then the detectives, previous colleagues of Ingram, laid out what had happened. The retreat, called the Heart-to-Heart Retreat had gone well enough until, on the last day, Erica was discovered weeping in a corner. (laughs) Among the church members running the event was a woman named Carla Franco who was believed to have the gift of prophecy. She approached Erica and, repeating as she put it what the Lord told her, said that the Holy Spirit had come to her and revealed that Erica had been a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of her father. Silently, Erica nodded her head, yes. It was later disclosed that Erica had also made this accusation about two other churchgoers at previous retreats, and in both cases, there was no evidence presented and no arrest made. On this occasion, however, after further probing, Erica stated that the abuse had been ongoing throughout her childhood, stopping only when her father became a Christian in 1977. Next, Ingram's younger daughter, Julie, made a statement saying that she too had been sexually abused by her father. Confused and heartbroken, their mother confronted Ingram, who swore up and down that the stories were untrue and that he couldn't explain why his daughters would make such accusations. As he said in the interrogation room while being questioned by his peers, quote, I didn't raise my daughters to lie. As the police pressed him, however, his story started to change and he began to confess to all manner of terrible crimes. He was arrested and put in solitary confinement to protect him from other prisoners, and over the next several months, the questioning continued. Mystified as to why his children would accuse him of such things, Ingram began to grasp for understanding. He met with a court-appointed therapist who told him that many abusers did not recall their crimes due to being in a state of denial, and that if he simply began to confess, he would start to remember. Ingram then met with his pastor, John Bratton, who told him that he had spoken to the girls and believed them. Ingram, he said, must be, quote, 80% evil. In a desperate attempt to right the wrongs he was starting to believe he had committed, Ingram underwent an exorcism. Bratton told him that through the ceremony, he would begin to see the truth of the girl's claims, and that if he prayed for his memory, it would return complete and accurate. With this suggestion in mind, Ingram began to pray, and, suddenly, to see flashes of images of himself abusing his daughters. As these flashes came, the detectives who were present encouraged him to see more and to report what he saw, and indeed, he saw greater and greater details of increasingly horrific acts perpetrated by himself, on his own <laughs> I just want to go back to my room. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. In. <laughs> now, let's pause here to remember the power of suggestion. Again and again, researchers have shown how susceptible humans are to suggestion. From small children to full-grown adults, suggestive questioning is highly influential and can alter or even completely obliterate original memories, as has been proven in studies by people like Elizabeth Loftus, Stephen Sisi, and many others. If this is true, in the most clinical lab study, imagine how potent and overwhelming such manipulation is in a high-stress, vulnerable situation such as the one Ingram found himself in during the fall of 1988. Completely isolated in a cell, visited daily by people who emphasized their certainty of his guilt, he began to crack. As detectives and therapists and even his own pastor pushed and pushed him, he saw more and more images of himself hurting his family and committing other atrocities, some as many as 20 years old. All of these visions were accepted as fact by his questioners, despite their direct contradiction to known academic research on the mechanisms of human memory. Fed by Ingram's false confessions and further questioning of his daughters, the accusations began to grow more bizarre and take on a life of their own. Erica and Julie now claimed that their father had made them participate in satanic rituals with other members of the police force, during which they had been raped hundreds of times. They said that they had been given abortions and forced to eat the fetuses. They said that they knew of the ceremonial slaughter of dozens of babies and that they had contracted various diseases from their many sexual assaults. Finally, Richard Offshe, a social psychologist with a specialization in false memory and interrogation, was called in. In short order, he recognized that Paul Ingram, despite his professed confessions, was not the monster that he was painted to be. In fact, Offshe believed that he had never committed a single of the crimes attributed to him. Instead, he was certain that Ingram had come to believe wholeheartedly that his blank memory was a sign of his guilt rather than his innocence and was willing to take the blame for anything he was accused of. To prove his theory, Offshe conducted an experiment. During an interview with Ingram, Offshe lied to him. He told him that one of his sons and one of his daughters had accused him of forcing them to commit incest with one another, even though this claim had never been made. Offshe knew the story to be untrue, and in fact, interrogators had made similar insinuations in the past, but they had always been met with staunch denial. Once again, Ingram denied the allegation. Offshe then told him to prey on the idea, to take his time and truly consider whether or not he could remember having done what Offshe had charged him with. After giving Ingram a chance to think over the accusation, Offshe returned. This time, Ingram produced a lengthy and detailed written confession, admitting to having forced his own children into incestuous sexual contact. To be absolutely certain that the story was false, Offshe then questioned the daughter who was supposed to have made the accusation, and she vehemently denied it, despite having made many, many other accusations against her father. And yet, even when presented with her insistent denial, Ingram refused to believe that he had not committed the crime. As he put it, quote, it's just as real to me as anything else. To Offsheet, this proved unequivocally that Ingram had been reduced to a state so malleable that he would confess to anything. Things did not turn out well for Paul Ingram. After entering a guilty plea, he attempted to withdraw his statements and claim innocence, but it was too late. Despite a report written by Offshe and submitted to the court, Ingram was charged with six counts of rape in the third degree and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Upon appeal, he was told that the original trial had included, quote, an extensive evidentiary hearing on the coercion issue, end quote, and found that Ingram's interrogations, as manipulative as they may have seemed, were not coercive enough to reverse his conviction. He was released in 2003 after serving out the majority of his 20-year sentence. There are those who believe that Ingram's story is among the most clear-cut cases of false memory implantation seen during the Satanic Panic. In fact, Elizabeth Loftus, who was considered by many to be a foremost expert on the subject, referred to Ingram's case as, quote, one of the most dramatic cases of false memory of abuse ever to be documented, end quote. But others doubt the scientific veracity of Offshe's memory test, and many find it hard to believe that Ingram would willingly confess to such hideous crimes under any duress, no matter how strenuous. It is safe to say, however, that there are methods of interrogation that result in unclear confessions, and of these we must be wary. Many listeners may be familiar with the Central Park Five case, or, more recently, the story of Brendan Dassey. In fact, according to statistics put forth by the Innocence Project, false confessions have accounted for more than 25% of the convictions later turned over by hard DNA evidence. Indeed, false confessions, which are caused by many factors beyond false memory implantation, is among the most likely reasons for wrongful conviction And research has shown that it is remarkably easy to coerce people into giving damning evidence against themselves, even when it is clearly untrue. But that's a story for another day. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with writing help from Mario Rivera and Sound Design and Music Composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast, or Twitter at PsychologiaCast, and visit our website for show notes or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do.